This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Code Mesh London is coming up on the 3rd and 4th of November. With the Tutorials Day on the 2nd of November as well, Code Mesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. You can expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, John Hughes, Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, Don Syme, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zabucki, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. On the 5th and 6th of November, Recon will be taking place in San Francisco. Recon is a two-day developer conference that brings together academia and industry to discuss a variety of distributed computing topics ranging from architecting, deploying, and developing NoSQL and distributed applications. On November 9th and 10th, Midwest.io will take place in Kansas City. Midwest.io is a two-day conference bringing together 300 developers for an eclectic collection of talks covering the latest trends, best practices, and research in the field of computing. Visit www.midwest.io to find out more. Then coming up on February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. And the call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st, and early registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to help announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I'll put them on my notes for future episodes ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Christopher Micklejohn. Do you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Christopher Micklejohn. I'm currently a senior software engineer at Machine Zone, working on their kind of core platform technology for their games. And starting in February, I will be a PhD student at the Catholic University of Louvain, supervised by Peter Van Rooy, working on distributed computing. So that's part of the reason I wanted to get you digging in on this was I was familiar with you from you and a number of the Basho crew giving talks and presentations and other things about distributed programming and how functional programming is kind of that gateway in some communities to thinking distributed with process isolation and functional purity and being able to spread that out concurrently across your CPUs, which are kind of mini distributed systems inside of one computer. So how did you actually get into functional programming and bring that background out? Yeah, so my history is is kind of weird. I've always kind of been into computers and just kind of programming in general. So during the end of my time in high school, which was the late 90s, I worked at an ISP, one of the first like dial-up providers in Rhode Island, actually, where I grew up. And kind of after I finished high school, I enrolled in college and then immediately dropped out because <laughs> uh, I kind of wanted to go into industry because it was so much happening, right? Because it's like the late, it was like, this was around 1998 and 97, 98. So the internet was like a really fascinating thing. So I got a job at an ISP, which got bought by a telco. And I spent most of my time doing administration for Solaris, 
Solaris systems and IRIC systems, so like Silicon Graphics, Sun Microsystems, and Digital Unix. So we were kind of building internet scale services at the time, which were very small. <laughs> yeah, like one server per service, right? And, uh, you know, doing that kind of stuff. And then after that, I, I, so I was there for about eight years. So I was doing very little programming there, just kind of on and off stuff with Perl and Tickle and expect scripts and stuff like that. So from there, I left after about eight years and went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston, where I helped write their online education platform for teaching people how to play like music online, teaching music theory and teaching performance online, which was all in Tickle, actually. So Tickle and AOL server. Towards the end of my time there, and I was there for about five years, towards the end of my time there, we started moving to Ruby on Rails. And I had done no object-oriented programming, really, except for some Java many years prior. I had done mostly like Tickle and Perl and mostly scripting stuff. So this is like, Ruby was really hard for me to understand. <laughs> Rails is really hard for me to understand. Deploying applications, like figuring out how you write code in that style, it was just like really a total different thing. And I was kind of one of the senior people at Berkeley in the group responsible for like management of all of the infrastructure and, and installing servers and building out data centers and doing like buying leased lines for fallback DCs and stuff like this. So I was like kind of out of the programming game for a while towards the end of my time there. So one day I just decided to quit and I went to a small startup in Rhode Island called Swipely where I started as a, so I kind of took a major step back and started as a, a junior developer there writing Ruby code. And it was primarily all Ruby on Rails and some JavaScript. So it was like kind of JavaScripty Ruby on Rails stuff. And then when we started scaling our service, we were initially on MongoDB and we were having a lot of problems with it. And I, I actually wasn't even really involved in that work. I was kind of tangentially involved just because the developer team was so small that everybody kind of knew what was going on, but not everybody worked on everything. And so we evaluated Redis. This is at least, like uh, I don't even know, maybe four to five years ago, I guess, maybe, I think, or maybe four years ago. So we were evaluating at the time Cassandra, Redis, React, and Membase. I think that was the name at the time, Membase. And my manager at the time passed around the Dynamo paper and was like, we're, we're like doing this thing. We're going to put this database called React into production. And I was just like, I don't even know what any of this is. Like, I don't understand why this is necessary. I don't even understand what these systems are. So. I started getting more and more involved into it. And I guess, you know, I just really wanted to know more about it. And I kept learning more about it. Uh, and I wasn't actually directly on the project that was integrating React either. So I kind of felt like, well, I really want to know it because all of my coworkers are learning this thing and it seems really, really cool. So I, like, I kind of went out and like hustled really hard to like understand everything about it. I was kind of blogging about it a little bit and talking about it on Twitter a little bit. And then Basho actually reached out to me. Mark Phillips, actually, and tried recruiting me for a evangelist position at Basho Technologies, a technical evangelist position. And I said, no, like, you know, I don't think that's really the right role for me. I, I feel like I kind of want to stay more in the development environment. And then through a connection of people that I knew in the Boston area, because Basho was in the Boston area and I was in the Boston area because I was at, you know, I had just left Berkeley and was at this startup. Basho reached out to me and I started interviewing there. And I basically, you know, I had been a little bit into functional programming, not really. Like I was trying to learn Haskell, but that was basically my only experience. And I totally faked my interview all the way through with Basho. <laughs> I made them believe that I was some amazing JavaScript developer. So I originally was hired at Basho not to be a distributed systems engineer. I was hired to write JavaScript code for a web front end to React. So during my interview process, and I've interviewed many people at Basho, and usually the interviews are highly technical, but during my interview process, I didn't get really asked about anything technical. <laughs> they didn't ask me about threading or like, you know, distributed systems or concurrency or locking or any, any of the stuff that we ask people, you know, that we ask people today. So I totally faked my way in and then just kind of learned basically everything, including Erlang. I learned it all on the job. So yeah, so... Andy Gross, who uh, was you know, a longtime Basho guy and one of the original founders of React, basically said to me at one point, you know, as soon as you ever become comfortable in a job, what you should do is go find the job that you want, fake your way in, and then learn it, and then just repeat that process. So, so I like to feel that my background kind of at least has a little bit of that <laughs> going on. So, Yeah, because I know you've also had a couple talks where you kind of talk about in a little more detail your mindset change between going from... Ruby dev to Erlang development and mm -hmm. that transition and the things that kind of caught you and wowed you. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I really like functional programming. I think it's a much nicer way to express ideas. I think it's easier to test. I think it's easier to understand the code. I don't know. It just feels like it's a much more natural way to write programs and to think about how programs run. So I am a big fan of functional programming. Coming from, you know, I'm not like a big fan of really object-oriented or imperative programming. And I tried kind of showing, so I gave a talk at Chicago Erlang Factory, maybe 2013 or 2014, and where I talked about that I built this entire application at Basho based with a Rails backend with this JavaScript front end. And then I I moved the whole JavaScript front end to talk this Erlang-based backend with Web Machine. And kind of the point of the talk was to show that a lot of times some of these, like if you look at the same application with the different abstractions, I think it was good because, you know, I was able to show some code and say, well, this is how you would do the similar thing in Erlang or do it in a functional style. And, you know, a lot of people came up to me after the talk and said, you know, that that was really inspiring. Like, those are things that I want to do. Like, you made it seem less daunting. So I think kind of, you know, using familiar applications and kind of presenting them built with different abstractions is really valuable to get people to see a different way. And, And maybe some of those people might not like functional programming, right? But I think it's a valuable learning tool because being able to think about problems in multiple ways is what makes good engineers, right? So Yeah, and it's interesting too with, and I'm sure we're going to circle back around this, is the more different ways and systemic thinking, that thinking in those different ways and having those different views and insights and perspective helps bring. So how did you get onto Haskell originally, since you said you started playing with some Haskell before you wound up getting into Basho. You said you were playing a little bit with that. You hadn't really done much, but you were looking at it. What kind of prompted the Haskell side? So when I worked at Berkeley, I had a couple co-workers who, one of them was a huge fan of Haskell and one was a huge fan of Common Lisp. And so I was like, well, those things are really interesting. I would like to know more about those things. I had an incredibly difficult time trying to understand Haskell. When I later revisited some Haskell stuff, so I, I am not a good Haskell programmer at all. I know very little. I can kind of read code and understand what it's doing. But for me to write programs, I, I just haven't spent enough time with the language, honestly. But at that time, when I was also new to functional programming and new to Haskell, it was incredibly difficult for me to understand what was happening. And I did not get very far. It was something where I like kept going back to like the Learn You a Haskell book or Real World Haskell, I think was the first book I started with. And like I kept going back to it and wanting to learn it, but just having an incredibly difficult time with some of the abstractions that are presented and just a different way of thinking. So so is the enthusiasm about the other languages that your coworkers brought to you that helped spike your interest as well then? Yeah, I would say it was the enthusiasm and just kind of, you know, like, wow, it's a really different way to think about a problem. And I feel like probably if I would have paired up I probably would have been more successful, but um, by myself, I I had a very difficult time just kind of making that transition. I think I I just kind of bit too much off at one time. The reason I'm kind of prodding there is that seems to be just one of those lessons in general. And I could imagine the same thing being said for Erlang if you weren't learning it on the job and trying to figure out, what am I actually going to build up with this, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had that problem going into a language where it's just presented in front of me and I have to like, um, so I took a course at Brown University, I was taking some grad courses there for a while. And so we were doing Benjamin Pierce's Software Foundations textbook, which is like a freely available textbook on the Cochlear Improver. And so in that course, you start by proving basic properties and the Cochlear Improver has a very restricted functional language inside of it, right? And as well as like a tactic language for proving properties about programs. And so I just enrolled in this course and I was like, yeah, it sounds interesting. Let's do it. And three or four chapters in, you you write basically like an interpreter for a simply typed lambda calculus. And then you prove properties about like progress and preservation, right? So that you can like kind of make steps. You can constantly make steps. And, and the steps that you take are basically well typed. So I didn't know anything about type systems. <laughs> I didn't know anything about functional programming in that side. Like I never programmed in an ML style other than my little quick rudimentary playing around with Haskell. So I didn't know any of this. But like given a framework where there was like an instructor and there were peers and we had the software foundations does a very good job of like kind of building up and it presents like very simple examples, like proving like commutativity and then like building on top of things like that, right? So just having like a goal made it a lot easier for me to get somewhere with the language. And arguably, that's a very difficult language to, to build things. In, right? So I think like a lot of times, like for me specifically, kind of, and same with Erlang, right? Like Erlang is not the easiest language in the world. I mean, it's now, now that I look at it, I'm like, yeah, well, it's 
it's way less complex than some of these other languages. But having a goal, like knowing exactly what I wanted to do or what I had to achieve made it so I spent less time kind of just learning syntax or semantics without like a, a reason, right? So that is kind of the, the learning method that works very well for me is learning kind of by having a goal. That sounds like good advice for anyone. And I've seen some other things coming across that recently of taking it in small steps and not trying to swallow the whole elephant at once and taking it in bites and realizing that you got to break it down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I remember when my former coworker Reed was on this podcast as well. And we kind of, I think, have different approaches to learning languages because I, you know, when I went back and listened to his episode before our call today, he was saying that he kind of approaches, if I remember correctly, he said he approaches languages like not with having like a pet project or something that he wanted to build, but more in like an exploratory kind of approach to the language. And I think that me and him kind of take different approaches to the way we kind of learn languages, I guess. I seem to recall him just saying it's essentially buckle down and work through it. And if you find a hump, you just work through that hump until you can get through. Yeah. So you got into Basho. You said you managed to fake it until you make it there. And with Basho and Rioc and the other papers there, Rioc is known as a distributed database. And there's a lot of work there. and a lot of talk around that. How did you find yourself going from functional programming just in general into thinking in the distributed systems and what kind of help did you find that your functional programming learnings helped going into the larger set of distributed systems? What was that path like? I guess initially, you know, I just felt that Erlang was the right choice because it had a distributed runtime really. I think that at least a lot of even the academic work that I'm doing now, we've chosen early. So there have been many reasons that we chose Erlang, but one of the primary reasons was that it has a distributed runtime and that makes building these applications very, very nice. I guess Erlang being functional is kind of maybe second to that, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to think about it a little bit more, right? Because there's something to be said that you could build the similar types of applications in something like Akka, right? Which is not functional. Or you can program in a non-functional style in that language. You can also program in a functional style as well. I guess it wasn't kind of a conscious decision at the time, like about the language being Erlang or being functional or something like that. It was really focused on the runtime and that it provided the groundwork that allowed you to build distributed applications and distributed algorithms and, and implement a lot of these papers very quickly and very efficiently. Now, the benefits of having it be this like nice functional language is it made that, you know, it made like the OTP abstractions are extremely nice. Trying to keep everything as pure as possible and having very few things mutate state, given that Erlang is not a purely functional language, all of that stuff kind of the design patterns that the language brings and that OTP bring make it a very nice language for testing things and handling crashes and recovery and stuff like that. So it makes it a lot easier to build some of these applications. And the, the runtime is really nice in some ways. It's, it's not very nice in some ways, but it's very nice in some ways. <laughs> Part of that question was, was it just the getting into and working on React that kind of sparked that distributed systems thinking for you? Or was there some other parts of maybe it was seeing how Erlang framework plays in and OTP plays in with some of those things? But a lot of people, and it was my experience for a while too, was until you kind of get into this functional programming world, you may know roughly the fallacies of distributed computing. But they don't seem to hit you until you take a deeper dive or have been bitten by hard, hard lessons. But it doesn't seem to be proactive from the people I've talked to without either having gotten into functional programming and started to see some of that or having to deal with major, major failures and say, oh, yeah, these things are real. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing for me, and I think this underlined most of my work on like kind of user interfaces as well as work on distributed systems and kind of is the basis for all of my research nowadays is this idea that at Basho, React is a distributed database. And there's this idea that if there's some database X and I read some value from it and you read some value from it, and then we both mutate our state and then we race back to the database to make our change, there's this idea that if I race and I win, if I get there first and then you get there later and your right overwrites mine, or vice versa, I overwrite yours, this idea that we've lost some information, right? And so this was kind of a, a big idea. This is a very kind of basic distributed systems idea, right? This idea of concurrency, and you have to understand how to reason about concurrency in the system and how to make decisions, right? Because you ultimately have this non-determinism in the system that says, eventually, 
one of these things is going to arrive. And if, unless I store both, like Amazon Dynamo does, or I have a way to reconcile the changes, I don't really know what to do, right? And you kind of lose information. So part of it was at Basho, I was building, you know, I was, I was trying to learn about React while also building this front end for managing clusters, right? So it's like UI for doing this. And as I explored more and played more around with the database and learned how the database worked, it was interesting to say, okay, we understand these problems and we're thinking really hard about them. And they're, re- they're very difficult problems to solve. These are extremely difficult problems to solve. And there's all these papers and there's all this math and there's been like 20 years thinking about these ideas. And then over in the JavaScript world, I was like working with these frameworks, <laughs> these like kind of JavaScript, like MVC style frameworks. And they would just say, okay, well, we'll get some state to the client. And then the client will just like overwrite the state back on the server when you commit things. And I'm like, hold on, like that's really messed up because on one hand, we have these distributed systems people who say, okay, this is a big problem, multiple computers working together to solve this problem, how do we do this correctly? And then kind of a lot of the thinking in the front end world, at least like five years ago, kind of punted on the issue altogether and said like, well, no, right, we'll just write it back. The user will only be in logged in once and only making its change once. And it was like this kind of, in one side of the world, kind of, I don't know, it's difficult to reconcile that, right? Because fundamentally, it's the same problem. If you have mobile clients that have state, or you have web browsers that have state, you have the same problem that you don't have this client server. This kind of idea that we think that there's client servers is, is kind of false, right? In that it's really a bunch of computers that are working together and each of them have state. And they have to reason about changes to the state. And we have to, we have to understand how concurrent operations are going to be resolved and, and kind of know what part of the system is deterministic and which parts of the system are not deterministic. So, um, kind of this motivated me to give this talk at EmberConf in 2014 about a lot of the CRDT work, which is basically this idea that you have concurrent data structures um, that have a deterministic resolution strategy. So kind of a priori, you establish what the resolution strategy will be for concurrent modifications. And this enables you to have determinism in the system, effectively, a form of determinism in the system. So I gave this talk, and the main idea of the talk was to say, the problems that we're dealing with are the same, We have to start thinking about web clients or mobile clients as kind of getting the state and making changes. And sometimes those changes might not be able to be applied. And there's many ways that you can resolve this, right? You could do something like last writer wins and let them overwrite it. But maybe you want something more intelligent that says, well, okay, I'm going to read some, you know, I'm going to try to apply these updates and maybe some of them won't merge correctly. So then I try to roll back stuff. You know, that's an approach. Another approach is to design things that can never not be merged, right? So try to build it so that every operation in the system can be commutative. So this was kind of the thinking that was beneficial from being kind of at the border of these two communities, right? And my advisor, Peter, he kind of shares this thinking where it's very beneficial to kind of be involved in these two communities, right? Because or be involved in kind of multiple communities, because getting ideas cross community are really important. Because, I mean, a lot of these ideas are overlapping, but when we kind of silo into these small communities that's trying to solve one problem, we kind of have all these different approaches and we don't learn from each other and it kind of just fragments the knowledge, right? So I think it was very beneficial to kind of be between those two communities. That was one of the things that when I had read on, you mentioned his episode where he kind of put it on and said, if you're writing a client server, if you're writing a web app and you're doing with JavaScript and you're doing anything more than just showing stuff on a page, you're writing a distributed system. And it's one of those things that when you say that becomes pretty obvious, but you don't necessarily think about it ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. So that that was the thing where, you know, you know, it's interesting, like kind of after I get that talk video went up and I sent it to some of the people in the research group that I'm involved in. And they were like, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, clients are <laughs> clients are basically just members of a distributed system, right? So I think it's something that not a lot of people kind of think about when they're building these things, especially kind of on the uh, on the practitioner side. I, I think it's a fairly, you know, it's a fairly straightforward thing, but maybe it just wasn't kind of widely known enough or people didn't really think about it enough. Where kind of on the academic side, I think people have always been operating or, you know, researchers have always been operating saying, well, yeah, that's obvious, right? Kind of, you know, we just... In the academic world, we just say, oh, there's a bunch of processes that are communicating, right? We don't kind of distinguish between them. We say that there are processes that mutate things and there there are some that won't mutate things, right? So we don't kind of draw this distinction in a lot of the research between like a client and server, right? Depending on the research. But so, yeah, I I don't know. I think that's that's an important thing for people to think about when they're building their systems. 
Probably most developers have dealt with the last writer wins problem, but it's always just been, okay, yeah, last writer wins. Well, sorry, you maybe you just need to be slower when you do your operations. Yeah, yeah. And last writer wins is a perfectly fine design choice for certain types of applications, right? It might be totally acceptable to have last writer wins. But, you know, there's some cases where we can do better, right? So those are the interesting cases. Yeah, and... It's interesting when you start having conversations about some of those domains where it doesn't fit in. Using banking as an example, you go off and you've got a shared bank account with someone else or multiple people because you're either an individual family or a company and you have all these transactions that go on and it's like, oh, we're just going to update the last balance. So if you manage to make a deposit and you had 15 debits in that time, well, your debits essentially go away because... The last writer happened to be the person who deposited the extra $2,000 in. So you go up $2,000 without having your any of your negative debits. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the bank account example is interesting. There's, so there's a tr- tremendous amount of literature on this, right? And kind of, you know, and there's been escrow protocols and th- things like demarcation and stuff like that, which are all like kind of techniques for solving the how do I deal with a bank account system or like a banking system that needs to be available where we also need to preserve some consistency? And there are tons of approaches, right, where you say, well, there's primary sites that have particular amounts of money, and you can move those with exactly once transfers between them and allow sites to make progress based on their local view of the information. And then, you know, in in some of the newer research, you have the ideas of, do I want to enforce the invariant and refuse some operations that might actually be valid? Or, you know, can I take the other approach that says, well, I will allow the invariant to be broken a little bit, right, or to some degree and then apply invariant repair mechanisms, right? So, and we see these kind of trade-offs in all sorts of systems today, right? Where sometimes we might say, hey, well, you did that thing, but sorry, it didn't go through. And, you know, this is how we repair it. And these kind of ideas are fundamentally at odds, right? These avail- this consistency availability idea is kind of fundamentally at odds. And you have to make trade-offs, right? And you make those trade-offs on a particular application use case on one of those particular use cases, right? You say like, well, for this set of operations, I may want to you know, kind of relax these constraints, but enforce these. And and for these subset of operations, well, maybe I can play a little bit looser here, right? So yeah, these are the fundamental trade-offs that we have to think about. And we want our cake and we want eight to two, right? But sometimes that is impossible. So we try to get as close as we can there. I came from a .NET background. So there was some stuff with event sourcing in there. And I want to say it was Udi Dahan. It might've been Greg Young, but they gave the example of like, look, you've had these concurrency issues even before software. Let's go back and figure out how the business actually deals with this. And to harken back to that bank example, it was, well, how did banks do this in the mythological Wild West that you see in the movies of the Wild Wild West of America? And you had these banks that had the different ledgers. And if you could outrun the mail carrier, you could go take out a whole bunch of money from your same account in two different towns <laughs> <Right>. because <laughs> they they each see this. You have... $200 in your account and you're like, I can go take out $200 here and I can go take out $200 there. And before they go back to the master bank branch, I've now got an extra $200 that they don't know about. Right. Yeah. So this is in, in our work. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of our work doesn't understand, I guess it, it, it kind of comes from that point of view, right? Is that, is that effectively the kind of the basis for a lot of the stuff I'm doing with my PhD is that everything is kind of weakly consistent to begin with, right? This idea that that we have these strongly consistent systems are just kind of approximations of knowledge that exists. And so what we need to do is we need to build computations that operate on this kind of partial knowledge and try to operate as correctly as possible on this partial knowledge and ensure that as more knowledge gets known, the system continues to grow kind of more correct, right? If we imagine there's some graph of global knowledge and the approximation of some knowledge that a system might know about is as it exchanges messages, we say it kind of like grows asymptotically to like the truth, right? But we don't really approach that, right? So how can we build systems that operate over this weakly consistent view of information? Because that's kind of like really how the world works. We do tremendously well operating every single day in the world without having a strongly consistent view of all this information. So can we kind of build computational models that kind of adapt to this? And kind of the domains that we're going after, this is extremely important, right? In the domains of like mobile computing, where devices go offline and then may come online and periodically synchronize their state, or even these like IoT networks where information might only periodically be sent and you have message delays. And and even when we think about like planetary or, or even bigger galactic scale like systems, distributed systems, 
fundamentally, we have to deal with latency. Things are going to take time to happen, right? And building systems that always want to synchronize all the time and always like kind of enforce a total order over events, it's kind of trying to reduce to a simpler model because it's easier for us to think about and easier for us to build systems with. But it kind of restricts how well we can grow those systems because you only can synchronize so much, right? Before your synchronization time is so long that your application basically is just the synchronization time, right? So the idea is, can we take a step back and can we think about building programming abstractions a new way? Can we build programming abstractions that can deal with like out of order messages? Can we deal with things like long delays and still enforce some invariance? So enforce the invariance about the application that really, really matter. And so can we? I don't know. This is research, right? <laughs> but it's really fun to think about. And it's fun to think about where we might be able to go with this and kind of what types of systems we can build. And, and there's also this really interesting problem that says, okay, so now we've, you know, we're kind of getting somewhere. Can we now look at th these computational models and say, well, okay, what kind of classes of applications can we build? Like, are these models inherently limited? Are we limiting ourselves by saying there's an entire class of applications that just cannot be developed this way? And if that's true, where do we go from there, right? So uh, I don't know. It's a really, it's a super exciting area of research because I think it has really big implications. I mean, much farther down the line, but I don't know. It's exciting. <laughs> so we've kind of elaborated on the problem and you've mentioned the solution in general, or at least one of these solutions in general, which was CRDTs. Do you want to expand on those a little bit more just to kind of give a better overview of what that is? Because I know there's a couple different variations of classes, but... Yeah, sure. So so again, like to take a step back, like the idea, the higher level idea here is how do we build computations that can operate over weekly consistent data? And so now that we have this idea of how can we do declarative programming over weekly consistent data, what are some of the concrete things that we can do today? Like what are some of the ideas that we're working on today? The research group that I work with is currently working on some research that's based on CRDTs. So we're not saying this is the end-all approach, but this is a approach to the problem. We're exploring how far we can take this approach and like what the bounds of this approach are. This is some work that we're doing called LASP, which is short for Lattice Processing. What this is is a functional language. Right now it's an embedded DSL in Erlang, but the semantics live by themselves. And the idea is it's a functional language that uses kind of the core data abstraction is the CRDT. So CRDTs are distributed data structures, so inherently concurrent because they're distributed data structures. And these data structures model sequent, they're kind of like they have sequential counterparts, right? So we have like a distributed dictionary that allows for composition. So it's a recursive data type. And we have sets, a bunch of varieties of sets and counters and flags. So a counter would be like, an integer that can move either in one direction or in two directions. We have flags, which are effectively booleans. So they're data structures that can move in one direction. So something can move from false to true or true to false. And we also have registers. And LastWriter wins as a type of register as well. And that actually, as much as we kind of harp on how LastWriter wins is bad, LastWriter wins actually has some interesting implications as well. So the idea is that if we take these data structures that are always guaranteed to give an a set of updates, so we say that if we take this data structure and we replicate it on 10 different machines for fault tolerance, and we give those 10 machines the same series of events in any arbitrary order, then the results of those data structures at those 10 machines will be the same. So it's deterministic. So if we think about a traditional set that you can add and remove elements, if for some reason a remove is played before an addition, so a remove on the empty set has a, like a no-op effect, and then an add of that element, and then it's played in the reverse order on another node, we can end up with a set where the element exists and a set where it doesn't exist. So these data structures try to model things in a monotonic fashion. And what that allows is that given these data structures always accumulate information, we can always reason about what the outcome will be. So what we do is we attempt to build programming abstractions on top of these. So in the same way that Lisp kind of uses S expressions kind of as the base data structure for the language, like everything is kind of first class. We're trying to build a language that uses these concurrent distributed data structures as the basis for a programming language, so the core abstraction. And this allows us to have programs that can be arbitrarily distributed. So we can take a program that, you know, so it's a data flow like functional language. So, so we can imagine that we could take a program that consists of maybe it does like a few map operations and then like creates a counter with a fold. We can take that program and arbitrarily distribute it across a bunch of nodes. And we can run it on 50 different nodes versus one node. And we'll, we guarantee that we'll actually get the same update as long as we ensure that all nodes in the system observe the same set of events. 
regardless of ordering. And so this is really nice because we put the challenges of distribution and event delivery in a runtime system. So now when the user is building a distributed program, they don't have to worry about explicitly sending messages between nodes. This is all done transparently in a language. If I have some variable A that represents a set, and then I have a variable B that represents you know, the map function applied to A that maybe doubles the elements, I can put A on a particular node, B on a different node, that map function on a different node, and the runtime takes care of ensuring that the events get delivered to the right places. And then we can replicate those programs for high availability and fault tolerance. And this allows us to ensure that we have programs that can crash and recover and all this stuff and end up with the correct result that preserves this determinism. And so this is really nice. And what we're trying to do is take this language and use it for declarative edge computation, right? So we're operating under the premise that at some time, so we're moving in towards this area in the IoT world is saying that sometimes it's too expensive to send all of the data back to like some centralized DC and run Spark on it or, or Hadoop or something like that, right? So in that case, what you want to do is you want to ship as much of the computation to the client as possible. So let's imagine that we're aggregating a set of metrics, but the data center only really cares about metrics every minute and the device is getting metrics every second. Well, we can pre-aggregate that data on the devices and we can send that data back to a centralized CC for processing of the aggregates, right? So now we've saved on bandwidth operation. We pushed some of the computation to the device. And we're building a programming abstraction that makes it very nice. So the, the language is very declarative. So you can say, like, you know, for all clients in the system, run this computation. And the runtime takes care of automatically pushing that computation out to the edge. So we're trying to kind of change the model of how this computation is done and kind of move away from this model. So again, kind of getting back, if we go all the way back to the beginning, where we talked about this idea of the client server, we're trying to change this, right? There isn't a client server. There are some nodes that require some subset of information to do computations in the system. And there are other nodes that may be providing that information. And they will eventually send that information and eventually all this communication will be done. But we're not trying to impose this model where I have a single machine in the data center that's got hundreds of terabytes and I'm just going to you know, have some process, some TCP socket open that's just accepting all of these events. So yeah, so that's kind of the, where we're going with this. And, and this is like kind of our first incarnation of attempting to solve the problem and explore the design space a bit and see where we can go. And with your client server thing, or the way I hear what you just said was, it's not a client server because what we think of as clients are actually providing data to another client, which is the server in the sense, and the server is a server in the sense of the clients and sometimes, but not always. And they both fill both roles depending on who needs what kind of feedback. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't like this idea of classifying these systems in this like kind of subordinate type relationship, right? Like the idea is that you have some components in the system, whether they're servers or processes that are responsible for some data, and you have other systems that are responsible for other data, right? And then the model that we built is kind of an opt-in kind of, it's similar to a publish subscribe model, but we're building like a uh, distributed kind of runtime system that has this call by need, like opt-in kind of semantic where you are a node in the system and you have all this variable state and all this, this scope. And you kind of say, well, I, I need to process something now. So I'm going to you know, kind of raise my hand and say, hey, I need to know about values of variable A at a particular logical time or a particular threshold value, right? Like, I don't care about getting information about the set until the set has at least three elements. You have this kind of computational model that allows you to opt in for information that you need. So we kind of consider all of the processes or servers in the system as kind of equal, and they compute with values that they need at the times that they need that information. Yeah, and when you say the Internet of Things, and you were talking about sensors and aggregating sensors, that is almost a server if you were going to flip it around because that's serving that sensor information. You may think it as a client, but it's really a server serving sensor information. Yeah, yeah. So this is a big, this is one of my, this is one of my favorite points we're actually writing an article on right now. And the idea is that, well, in this model, when we think about, well, what does strong consistency mean? Well, like in this model, the sensors are the source of truth, right? Normally you think of, and I think this is a big change. And, you know, this is an observation that we have is that normally you kind of say, okay, there's some Postgres server over there. I'm going to put my updates in. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go insert that. And then if the insert fails, I'll just keep trying to insert it, right? But that's like an inversion of the model, right? The, of the true model, which is the true model says, well, the client really has the source of truth. The client has the real information. 
And this idea that I just repeatedly try to put it in this Postgres database until it accepts it, and then we query that database is this kind of inversion of the model that says, well, until I give my information to that person, it's not really like, you know, it doesn't have this kind of truth value, right? So, so that's an interesting way to think about how we work with databases today and kind of how we're trying to change that model of computation effectively. And the other thing, you kind of mentioned Internet of Things things with, there's also the fact of that a lot of those things that are coming out now are either power-based based off of household power or they're based off battery power. They may be able to be collecting sensor information and if they only send it back every minute or five minutes or 30 minutes for aggregation because of extending battery life of not booting up a wireless signal to communicate back to wherever, you've got to hold on to that and who knows how long that battery or power is out and you've now got to take advantage of that time and play catch up with what you have and account for the fact that you've theoretically lost some information just because you weren't able to ever collect it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is the idea of that. Well, the computations, the things that you actually do with this data are kind of weakly consistent to begin with, right? Yeah. And what I'm kind of getting at with this is the more I hear about CRDTs and people talking about it and the logical time versus real time, tell me if this is an apt metaphor. It almost seems like we've been treating software development in industry or just outside of academia as Newtonian physics and a lot of this distributed systems research and things like the Paxos papers and everything else that kind of follows along this chain is essentially the physics where, look, time is all relative. There is no set of time. You think you know what time is, but you really don't know what the time is because everybody's observing everything in different manners at different speeds. And if I'm sitting on a car, I feel like I'm standing still and the world's moving around me. But if a car is going faster, I think that thing's moving only moving relative to me and that whole scenario kind of thing, right? Yeah, the idea here is that, yeah, everybody is going to see events in a different order. And yeah, this idea of, you know, these things where we globally sequence events effectively, which is synchronization, this global sequencing, this global sequencing is problematic because it slows the system down, right? So, and, and one of the nice things about CRDT, bringing this back to functional programming, one of the really nice properties is that in functional programming, you have two very important properties in like a purely functional language, right? And those properties are referential transparency, which says that I can evaluate some function and the result of its value can be treated in place of the function. And then the second property is confluence. And the confluence property basically says that the order of evaluation kind of doesn't matter, right? I can evaluate this in any order. When I perform like the beta reduction, I can evaluate this in any order and I will get the same result. So CRDTs kind of are a way to provide these properties in distributed systems, if I have a system that's computing over some CRDT and that CRDT is growing and observing events in some arbitrary order, I can guarantee that regardless of the order, regardless of the evaluation order that I apply those updates on those events, I don't have to globally sequence, I will get the same result. And then if I take some CRDT and then I, you know, kind of replace it with, if I have some function that's operating over that CRDT and that CRDT has quiesced effectively, then that value is substitutable for the function that's doing that valuation over the CRDT for a given subset of events. So these are really nice properties because these are properties that make it very easy to reason about how a function will execute. We don't have to think about ordering anymore. We don't have to think about duplication of events because CRDTs are idempotent as well. So you get all these really wonderful properties. And we kind of remove temporal time out of the equation. We stop thinking about time and we start thinking about, well, as long as I can guarantee that I deliver some subset of events, so as long as the system has this guarantee that eventually everything will be delivered in the system, then our computations will end up with the values that we expect. And that's a, that's a really powerful way of building systems. So with the guarantee of everything is delivered in the system, how strong is that guarantee or does it matter if something never actually responds and for all intents and purposes, it is lost? And I'm thinking of things like Git, we have six people working on a team, five of them all do master, someone's made some changes and has never pushed any of those changes anywhere else and merged it. It may be on its own branch and never even merged it into master that that system is still pretty close to being consistent, if not truly consistent. 
Where does that fall for things like that, where you may have one of these Internet of Things sensors that's collecting data but never actually synchronizes anything back for all eternity? Yeah, yeah. So that that's a really good question. So this is this is a real big challenge in trying to formalize a lot of our work and prove our work to be correct, right? Because a lot of the works, uh, a lot of the, you know, if you think about the model, we can say, well, yes, as long as all the clients eventually come online, and you know, if we assume that they're, you know, the state's replicated, so we say, well, as long as all the clients come online and there's at least a correct replica operating, so non-Byzantine behavior, then yes, you will get the correct result. So how does that model change? How does that model become more difficult when you sacrifice some of these guarantees, right? Where you say, well, there might be some client that doesn't come online. What happens if that client comes online and sends a state to one node, right? And then that node goes down, but maybe that node comes back up. So, so a lot of these things start bringing into a question of how do we formally define those situations? How do we think about those things? So this is stuff that I understand the problems. I don't understand the solutions yet because we're still thinking about it. But yeah, this is totally a problem. How do you deal with a client that might... So in our ad counter example, we say that you know clients will go offline and they'll increment ads and they'll come back online and synchronize with a kind of data center to say, these are the many ads were displayed while I was offline. And then we basically pay advertisers based on those impressions, right? Or have those advertisers pay us based on impressions. And in that example, you could say, well, what happens if somebody goes offline for a week and displays 100,000 ads and never comes back online? So that reduces down to some lost revenue for some client, right? Because either all of these ads were displayed and maybe they were clicked on or viewed for a significant amount of time, but nobody's paying anybody for them because the client never came back online. So yeah, you have, to, you have to say, like when you're building these models, you have to kind of make a decision, at least at this stage in the game, you have to make a decision that says, am I okay with allowing that to happen, knowing that a client may never come online again? Do I want to just disable that functionality while they're offline? Or do I not care? Because realistically, most people are going to come back online unless their devices die, right? So it's a technical challenge in terms of the computational model, how we formalize it, and how do we prove the model's correct. But it's also kind of an interesting kind of challenge from a business point of view, right? Effectively, how do you deal with these situations where this might happen? This is totally a realistic scenario that that might happen. The other thing that I'm kind of thinking about is... The reason I kind of prompt you is, again, back to the internet devices or even just standard servers as we think of them now, we start to think of things that there's the network partition, which means it goes offline and eventually comes back online. And then you've got the, this thing's going offline, never coming back online again, because we've scrapped that thing and either replaced it with a new thing, or we've just removed that completely from the system. And therefore... Everything that happened up until that point is valid, but we never expect to hear, like, we know we never expect to hear from this thing again for one reason or another, because it's a hard termination versus a partition kind of termination. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So these are all, these are all very interesting challenges on many, many dimensions. <laughs> and it's, and with this immutable architecture and everything like that, it seems like it's got the potential to play in even worsely because we're like, just destroy that machine and we'll start up a new one. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, you have to deal with, uh, yeah, how, how do you kind of handle those situations? Yeah, for sure. But I mean, many of these frameworks that exist today deal with this problem. They just don't really kind of call it out. So even systems like Orleans assume that actors can have some sort of state that may want to be persisted. And kind of the practical example of how you manage the state and ensure that you have serialized access to the state and you can persist it is like, oh, yeah, well, you just have like your actor system that's storing all the state kind of talk to Azure or something, Azure's storage service or something. So and in Akka, they make similar kind of choices, right? When you have to store shared state persistently in a fault tolerant way, well, write it out to this other thing. And we do this in Erlang as well. So I don't think any of these challenges are new. I think that pushing computation to the client exacerbates the problem a bit, but it's a problem that we're already kind of dealing with today, and I think that we'll have to find a way to deal with into the future, I suppose. I don't know. That's, that's about as far as I think I can kind of talk about it until I think about it more. But yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, think the, I don't think the challenges are, are essentially new. Maybe they're just exacerbated. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was getting at was it seems like we could be on the hinge of being forced to think about a lot of this a lot sooner than most of us would like to. Uh-huh, yeah. Well, yeah. I think I yeah, I mean to that point I think we've made a large portion of people start thinking about distributed computing a lot sooner than they were expecting to as well, right? So <laughs> So for resources, you had a podcast, Think Distributed. I did. And that had a lot of good information, a little bit in depth if you weren't quite caught up. 
but still a good overview. In addition to that, for anybody who's interested in checking that out, what are some other good resources to get people's feet wet and started and finding their path to being able to kind of think in a more distributed systems-oriented manner as opposed to just going deep diving and trying to understand the Paxos or RAF papers without any presumed knowledge? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I guess uh, I have a few points there. So yeah, I think distributed, we have a few episodes and then me and Peter Bayless, who are kind of doing working on this together, kind of both got very busy. And I was in the process of traveling a lot for research. So it kind of lapsed a bit and hasn't had any kind of movement in a while. However, we do have two episodes that are really good. One is on the problem of causality and one is on the problem of consensus. So that's a really good kind of talking about the space and what the challenges are. I think those are really valuable resources. Additionally, at least on my blog, I maintain a few reading lists on CRDTs and distributed systems, and those have you know a bunch of resources. The distributed systems one, I kind of only have very early influential papers with the CRDT list. I try to keep updated with all the publications that come out that are relevant to CRDTs every few years. That one's easier for me to keep updated because I'm actually in that space and publishing along the side the authors who are doing a lot of the publishing as well. So it's easier to know. And I'm at a lot of the conferences where it happens, so I, I can update the blog post immediately. But outside of that, I guess I've never been a big fan of just picking up the Paxos paper and reading it. I think to get an understanding of the problems and the trade-offs, it might be more beneficial for people to watch conference talks where people talk about deploying these things in production and read some more of the industrial papers that talk about solving some of these things in practice. A lot of those papers tend to be slightly less technical and less theoretical, but provide a good motivation for the problem. So usually the motivation sections and introductions talk about a specific case that they're trying to solve. So you can make a real world connection to the problems where I feel like if you just go into the raft paper, you're like, okay, this is distributed consensus. Now I know how to solve distributed consensus. But the problem I feel that you'll have if you kind of do those things is that, okay, now you have this consensus hammer and you're looking for nails, right? (laughs) And from my point of view, it's kind of like a lot of these problems, if you think of them and, and look historically how some of these things have been solved, a lot of these things, if you kind of weaken the constraints and weaken the requirements slightly, you can provide a solution that scales much better and doesn't require consensus or something like that, right? It requires less synchronization or maybe only periodic synchronization or something like this. So I feel like starting with solving the consensus problem with a particular implementation might kind of cause somebody to always go towards that as being the solution to the problems, where I feel kind of getting a broad overview. So that's why papers like Bayou, Bacteri, and the Amazon paper are great, is because these papers take a lot of techniques that were known in academia, like four or five techniques or six, you know, a bunch of techniques that were well known and kind of combine them into building a system that solves a problem. So these papers are great because they introduce you to a bunch of different techniques, and they introduce how you can combine those techniques to make something that's unique that solves a particular use case. And I feel that for people in the industry, this is a tremendously valuable research. You want to know that these techniques exist. You don't have to understand all of them. You don't have to understand all the protocols. You don't have to understand how to prove them. You don't need to read these papers, these distributed algorithm papers, and read the proofs and understand them. What you want to do is you want to have a knowledge of a variety of different ways to solve a particular problem so that when you're approached with a unique problem, you can find a unique kind of combination of those techniques to solve the problem. Now, from somebody who wants to get more involved in the academic side, my best advice to you is to find a problem that matters. Don't go into, I was told to read all these papers because these papers are important. I think that you don't actually learn a lot that way. Um, and it more becomes just kind of like school where you have to read a bunch of papers and you know be able to recite them back really well. I think that's not valuable. I think what's valuable is to find a problem that really inspires you and then kind of look at the resource research around those problems and then follow the citations back and just explore the space. I feel that people learn much better when they're interested and they can make a connection to something. And for me, this was... I was thinking of, as a JavaScript developer, I was thinking as the front end, as a client in a distributed system, and I wanted a really nice way to say, I got some state and I transformed that state. So I've always been very big into functional reactive programming and data flow languages. So my idea was I wanted to have a user interface that had CRDTs to handle concurrent operations happening between different clients in the server. And I wanted to have a data flow language on the front end. So in the browser, that would allow me to take these CRDTs and transform them and create some presentation based on them. And I actually went to Joe Hellerstein's group. I was traveling in San Francisco, and I went to meet Joe Hellerstein. 
who runs the Bloom Group at Berkeley, who's done the Bloom research and the Daedalus research with Peter Alvaro and Neil Conway. And I said to him this exact thing, like, I want CRDTs, I want Bloom, Bloom L, I want it in the browser so we can write web interfaces this way. And I didn't end up going to Berkeley. I ended up getting involved in this Sync for Europe project, and my, my PhD is going to be in Europe instead. But it's kind of almost come, it's almost been that thing, right? So I've been following this kind of thread for five years. And now I'm doing this declarative programming language. I'm doing it for edge computation, so it's much more general. But it's always been that same problem. It's been that same problem for like five or six years that I've been focusing on. Like, this is the wrong way to write web applications. This is the wrong way to think about distributed state. So, yeah, I, I think it's very important. You know, regardless, find a problem and just research the hell out of it and just get into it and just explore that space. And I think only great things will happen. And you mentioned talks. So aside from going and watching your talk at EmberConf and any other talks that we put in the show notes and whatever talks people can find of you, who are some other people that you would say put on good conference talks that help get people into this topic? Yeah, so I would say probably some of the, so I had Peter Alvaro's talk at Strange Loop, I highly recommend. So Peter kind of takes a declarative approach, but approaching it from like a logic programming point of view for distributed systems. So me and Peter are kind of in the same space, but kind of approaching the problem slightly differently. His keynote at Strange Loop was absolutely phenomenal. I highly recommend that. Recon usually has a lot of good talks. So over the past couple of years, there's been some so Neil Conway gave a talk on Bloom L. I gave a talk on Bloom L as well at uh, Wicked Ruby. So Neil gave his at Recon East 2013. So those kind of are good introductions. And Joe Hellerstein's keynote, Recon 2012. These are all the ideas of handling distributed state and programming abstractions for distributed state and building distributed algorithms. These are all talks in the same space. And finally, uh, Sean Cribbs gave a really good talk at Recon last year, Recon 2014. That was on causality, things like vector clocks and version vectors and stuff like this. So how do you reason about changes in distributed systems and how do you order events in distributed systems? So all of that's kind of around the same space and, and kind of how you approach that problem. And I'll put all those in the show notes for everybody to find as they listen to this and want to dig in more. Sure. Yeah. You've got some upcoming appearances. You've already mentioned one project of last. Do you want to elaborate on your appearances and give a little more details for last and anything you want to kind of make sure people know about? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just give a few references. So the research I do on last is at last-lang.org. And it has a link to my strange loop video, which provides like a really good motivation for the problem. And it isn't highly technical. There are resources that are way more technical and links to all the papers. But that's a really good starting off point if you're interested in learning about what we're doing. LASP is partially funded under the SyncFree EU project, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes because uh, it's a syncfree.lipsix.fr. And so this is an EU-funded research project on CRDTs in practice. So how can we deploy them at scale and kind of optimize and see them used in actual applications? So that's a really great place. And we have links to all of the papers that our research group has worked on, and we have links to a bunch of talks. And there's just a lot of really good information that you can get. So it's kind of a good portal to a bunch of resources on these problems. And then for upcoming appearances, I will be at CodeMesh in London talking about eventually consistent or synchronization-free designs for mobile gaming. So we'll kind of look at the application of LASP to building a eventually consistent leaderboard and a eventually consistent advertisement counter. And then I will also be at Recon in San Francisco giving a full talk on LASP just kind of the overview of the language and what you can build with the language. And then at the end of the month, I will be at QCon San Francisco talking about a completely different topic, but also a topic that's very interesting. I will be giving kind of a history of uh, chain replication in academia and in industry, talking about the evolution of the protocol and the various kind of production systems that have been built with the protocol. When we'll make sure to get that announcement and I'll look about circling with any of those have videos that come out. I'll try and remember to circle back around and put those videos in once they've come around. So is there any other call to action that you want listeners to take away? I don't have anything in particular. I guess if you have any questions about any kind of distributed system stuff or CRDTs or programming abstractions for distributed computing, you know, I'd love to talk about it. So you can find me on Twitter and email and my blog and everything. So yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm, you know, I live to talk about this stuff. Yeah. So just looking forward to hearing from some people. Twitter, email, blog. Is there any other place for them to find you besides the last link site? GitHub, I guess, as well. Uh, no, those are the primary places, really. And I'll make sure to get all those appropriate links added to the show notes as well. Great.
I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Chris, for giving your time to join me today. This has been really mind expanding and something I'm just trying to dip my feet and toes into the water and find out more. But I, you've given me good insights and interesting affirmations of things that I were kind of thinking might hold true, but you've kind of outlined it as well as other good resources that I need to go check out on this. So thank you very much for taking your time and joining me and talking about distributed systems. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. I had a good time. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.